Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. I remember the way they talked about these people on campus. These elusive panthers of the African savannah that slipped in out of consciousness and were heard when they wanted to be heard from and seen when they wanted to be seen. And they talked about these people like, if you stick around long enough, you might just be lucky enough to run into one of these people, this elite group. These people were called Dorgan Survivors. Dr. Dorgan, Dr. Kelly Dorgan, was a professor on campus, and she was known for being incredibly tough on her students, so much so that she had a name for the people who survived her class. They were Dorgan survivors, and I finally understood why they were such a rare breed. I was in the middle of a qualitative research class with the infamous Dr. Kelly Dorgan. I had no choice. I had to take this class. I signed up for it, not knowing what I was going to get myself into. The first day I show up, there are three other people in the class, so you cannot hide. And for the next hour and a half, you need to do this. You need to have this book. You should have had this read already. You need to do this. You need to sign up for this. You're going to write this paper. You're going to do this research, blah, 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 for an hour and a half. And my butt just sank in my chair under the weight of expectations of Dr. Kelly Dorgan. And I finally understood Qualitative research is just a big academic term for academic research that involves people and is people-oriented. It was brand new to me. I hadn't done it before, but I was determined to become one of these people. I had a, a point of pride. I wanted to be a survivor, and so I invested a lot of time into my work. My papers, I poured over them. I poured over academic journals to find good resources. I made sure everything was great, grammatically correct, and I turned in my work, and I waited for the feedback. And the feedback was filled, filled in every inch of the paper with red pen. Most of it negative. And so I would get this back, I would look at it, and natural student response, I hate this class, that woman is so stupid, doesn't she know how hard I worked, I deserve a better grade than this. And I would throw my paper in frustration, so much so that now years later, if you ask Michael, our lead pastor, he'll say, yep, I remember that conversation. I was there to get your verbal frustration. You know, five or ten minutes goes by, and you get a little bit curious about what it says. So you pick it up off the floor, and oh, that kind of makes sense. Dang it, she has a really good point right here. And I, I see what you're saying here. And hey, look, right down here, I did something right. And it was filled a whole semester of that kind of feedback. And the thing about Dr. Dorgan was she made you want to give your best. She was the kind of teacher who saw the potential in you that you didn't even see in yourself. And she drew that out of you and made you want to give your best so that you could achieve more than what you ever knew that you were capable of yourself. 
And for that reason alone, Dr. Dorgan is one of my favorite professors, which is really saying something because I'm on like my senior lap of the 25th grade at this point. I'm a major glutton for punishment. So I've had a lot of options to choose from, but Dr. Kelly Dorgan rises from the top. Well, today, you know, Michael said we're continuing in this series about overcoming, looking at the life of David. We talked about overcoming labels, overcoming fear, overcoming comparison. Today, what we want to talk about is overcoming shallow relationships. In our friendships, romantically, we want to overcome shallow relationships. As you know, we've been looking at the text in the life of David, and we've been introduced to two main characters over the last few weeks, David and Saul. And Saul is the king of this nation, and he is the one who gives permission to David to go and fight Goliath. David does, kills Goliath, still has Goliath's head in his hand, and he gets to go meet the king because he has just killed this giant. Here you go. I'll just... Set this gruesome head right here for you. Hi, king. My name's David. Nice to meet you. And so they talk, and as they're talking, of course, the king's son is present as well. The king's son is a young man named Jonathan, very close in age to David. We're going to pick it up from there in 1 Samuel chapter 18. These are verses 1 through 4, immediately after David's conversation with King Saul. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan... Saul's son became one in spirit with David. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. So Jonathan had a lot of exposure to David as well. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And you hear those words, and you read it, but you don't understand the significance of what Jonathan just did. Something major just happened. Jonathan's words and actions pledge his friendship to David. There are two other examples in the Bible where a member of the royal family, the king or his family, takes off their own clothes and gives it to another person. First comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. And a man has just solved a national crisis. There's going to be seven years of drought. And this man says, this is the plan that we need to do so that our entire country can have food for these seven years. And he says this to the Pharaoh, the most prominent person in all the land. And the Pharaoh's response is to take off his ring, his garments, golden necklace, and give it to the man. I am bestowing honor upon you because of the wisdom that you just showed. The other example comes from the book of Esther, also in the Old Testament. And the king is asking one of his officials, what should I do if I want to honor somebody? Somebody in my kingdom is worthy of honor and I want to know what to do. And the official's response is, give, the king, give this man a royal robe the king has worn a horse the king has ridden, and a crown that the king has worn. To wear the clothing of a king or a prince was considered the highest honor that could be bestowed upon you. So Jonathan is giving honor to David in this instance. 
But he doesn't just stop there. He's giving his friendship as well. He gives David his armor, his sow, his, his sword, excuse me, his bow, and his belt. Elsewhere in the book of 2 Samuel, we read that his bow was his favorite, most accurate weapon. In essence, this would be like David giving away his sling that he had just used to kill Goliath with. Homer, in his epic The Iliad, describes how two characters in that book exchange armor in token of their ancestral friendship. And so both within the Bible and outside of the Bible, we see an example of friendship portrayed through giving of weapons. There's a man named William McCain, and he's a Bible commentator, which means his life's profession is to know as much about the Bible as possible so that people like me can Google him and sound smarter than I actually am. So he understands the culture, the context, and the history of the Bible. And he says, William McCain, essentially, Jonathan invests his weapons because the armor and weapons are so much a part of a man that they serve as a vehicle of personal connection. Other scholars share similar thoughts as well. A man named Peterson said, to carry the weapons of another meant to share very intimately with that person. Think about it. Jonathan is making himself, from a physical safety standpoint, he is making himself vulnerable. I am giving you what I use to protect myself. It's an exchange of friendship. Simply put, this is an exchange, a pledge from the heart, where Jonathan gives his allegiance and his life and friendship to David, and David's acceptance of Jonathan's weapons is an acceptance of this friendship as well. There's a lot that we want to cover today, so due to time, I'm going to fast forward us a little bit and just highlight a couple of things here. First of all, Saul was jealous and afraid of David. David was a direct threat to his kingdom and his authority. The people respected David more than they did King Saul. So as a result, multiple times, King Saul tried to kill David. And just to make the family connection a little bit more complicated, David marries one of Saul's daughters. Sit in on those family dinners. But it's a complicated web that this family has, and tension is building back and forth between King Saul and David. And as David and Jonathan's friendship grows, Jonathan feels the tension as well. His allegiance to his dad, his family, his future kingdom, his rightful place as king in the future, and this friend, David, that he has made. It all kind of culminates in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. We're going to dig into that in just a little bit. But in all of his victories, David has stayed humble. He has stayed grounded because of his faith and relationship with God. And David earnestly comes to his friend Jonathan. What have I done that makes me an enemy of your father, the king? What is so wrong about my life? David is facing death at every corner. And Jonathan is agreeing to help David even at the expense of his relationship with his own dad. Check out 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 3 through 9. David took an oath and says, Your father, King Saul, knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. 
King Saul's not dumb. He knows that we're tight. We're boys. We hang out. Your dad knows this. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this. By this, David means that King Saul wants to kill me or he, Jonathan, will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only one step between me and death. And in this case, that step is King Saul. So Jonathan says to David, whatever it is that you want to do, I will do it for you. David says, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because of an annual sacrifice being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant, David, is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be determined that he is, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant. David is referring to himself when he says servant. Show kindness to me, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. If I've done anything wrong, Jonathan, you kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? And of course, Jonathan's response is never, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? Through God, David was able to overcome extreme circumstances. Part of that is because he has this incredible friendship with Jonathan that is greater than family, that is built on both grace and truth. If you think about relationships today, though, that's not what the world tells us relationships are supposed to be like. Friendships are not supposed to look like that. The world tells us friendships are about being seen, using people for your own agenda. Yeah, I'm going to give you a perfect rating on Yelp, but three months from now when I need something from you, you're going to remember that perfect rating and we're going to work out a deal. It's talking about people. It's gossip. A little gossip doesn't hurt. You know, we're just catching up, talking about people, finding out what's going on in people's lives. It's keeping everybody just far enough away that we're close, but I'm comfortable, and I never have to be vulnerable and real with you. It's pretending that everything is okay all the time. It's overly pressuring your kids to look good for your own pride rather than what they actually want to do. However, when you look at David and Jonathan, you see this brotherhood that is first of all connected through God. A deep sense of trust that they have in one another and a sense of putting the other person first. It's not about my needs, my desires, my future kingdom. It is about putting the other people's needs first. And this is what we need in our relationships today. We need people that pick us up when life falls apart because life falls apart. We need people that when the instance is godly and it follows what the Bible tells us and how we should live to potentially go against our own family and own friends to stick up for each other. We need people to help us be people after God's own heart. And we need people to kick our butt sometimes when we need it to. 
We're going to continue on with the story. It's going to be verses 24 through 34, which is a very large chunk of Scripture. So I'm not going to read it word for word. It's going to be up here behind me. You can follow along. And we're going to catch up to what happens at this feast that David is talking about. David goes and he hides in the field. And the king at his feast comes and sits down to eat. As was custom, he sat by his place directly opposite his son Jonathan the prince. But he noticed that David's place was empty. David wasn't there. Saul thought nothing of it, and he said, Surely he must be ceremonially unclean. That's why he's not here today. But the next day, the second day of the month, again, Jonathan and Saul come and sit down, and David is absent. Saul notices this, and he says to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't this son of Jesse come to this meal? Now, it's really interesting to notice his words that he is using. He says, this son of Jesse. He does not say David. His contempt for David is so much that he is not even wanting to call him by name. Jonathan answers the scripted answer that they worked on. Oh, David said, I need earnest permission to go to Bethlehem. My family, my brother has ordered me to be there to observe a sacrifice. That's very important. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me go away to my brothers. This is why I'm not here. They're following the plan. Saul's anger flares up at Jonathan, and he says to him, You are a son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you have sided with this son of Jesse? As long as this son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. It's really interesting to dig into what Saul is saying here. Not only can he no longer say David's name, he can no longer say Jonathan's name either. With his words that matches his mindset, he is putting David and Jonathan in the exact same boat together. Because Jonathan has obviously sided against me, he has chosen his friend over me and my kingdom and his kingdom, he is is the exact same as that son of Jesse. And he deserves the exact same as that son of Jesse. Now don't you get it? Send one to bring him to me, for he must die. He, meaning David. And Jonathan sticks up for his friend. He says, why should he die? What has he done? And Saul is so angry, he throws a spear at his own son, intending to kill his son. (laughs) And then Jonathan kind of clues in. No, duh. (laughs) Here's his truest tensions. He wants to kill David. And Jonathan is angry. He gets up from the table and he leaves in anger because of the way his father treated his friend David. There's a lot going on in this story, a lot of emotions packed into this story, and there's a few things that we can draw out of this. The first thing that I draw out of this is that real friendships are intimate. Real friendships are intimate. And if you're a guy and you're thinking about the friendship that you have with another guy, you're squirming in your seat a little bit right now because I just said that word and it's getting weird. (laughs) But real friendships are intimate. When I worked at a church about a decade ago, I was asked to give a smaller, a devotional thought, like five-minute thought about this idea of intimacy and your relationship with God. And there were 50 or 60 people who worked at this church, and I was young, single, not going on dates, didn't have a girlfriend. And so I was like, 
maybe the lead pastor doesn't know who I am. Like, I, I know nothing about this topic. I'm not married. But it's because we confuse and we construe this word. The literal meaning is to associate in close personal friendship, warm friendship, or personally close feeling. Dictionary.com gives 12 examples of what this word means, and only two, two of them, have a sexual connotation. So we, as society, have construed this word to mean something completely different than what it actually means. Real friendships are intimate. And if you're a Christian today, the depth of the intimacy in your friendships should never exceed the depth of the intimacy in your relationship with God. The depth of the intimacy in your friendships should never exceed the depth of the intimacy in your relationship with God. Your deepest, most intimate friendships, if you are a Christian, romantically and interpersonally, romantically think, I married my best friend. My wife is my best friend. Interpersonally, I have friendships. Your deepest, most intimate friendships need to be with people who love Jesus more than they love you. And if that's not true, then you've got it reversed. And you need to think about that. Mark 12, verse 30 and 31 says, essentially, love God and then love people. Put God first and then love people. If you're not a Christian here today and you're sitting here and you're curious or you're skeptical and you're wondering what this is all about, I'm not going to tell you that your friendships are bad or wrong because they're not. We all need friendships. But I am going to challenge you with the idea that perhaps your friendships are missing something. Something that can only be filled with people who love and care about you the way that Jesus loves and cares about them. For all of us today, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And this does not happen in shallow relationships. Real friendships are intimate. Next, real friendships are strange. They are weird, countercultural. They go against what the world says, and people notice it, and they may even call you out on that. Society doesn't get it. Real friendships don't depend on likes, follows, or comparison, and they don't thrive on drama. Real friendships are strange. This applies in our friendship, our relationship with God as well. Sometimes I, as a man, when I'm praying and talking to God, I simply tell him how I feel. And I try to shut off my male fix-it mode brain and just go to my emotions and say, God, this is what I am feeling right now, and I just want to tell you that. I was in South Africa a few years ago, and part of my year that I spent over on the continent of Africa, and I was attending a Christian weekend seminar, and I was sitting out in the middle of nowhere on a ranch under a sky full of stars. Imagine you're at the Rocky Mountains, and this is what I'm looking up at. And I'm 29 at the time, and since that time that I was 23, 25, 27, 29, I'd watch my friends grow up, 
get married, take big boy and big girl jobs, and find their place in society. I'd watch my two older brothers do that. I'd watch my younger sister do that. And I was just saying, God, I feel lonely because I'm by myself. I feel like I am not complete. And I just want to tell you how I feel. And if you talk to people and you tell them you do that, it's a little strange. It's a little weird. It doesn't make sense. But real friendships are strange. The final last example that I thought of is real friendships hurt. And that does not make sense at all. But real friendships hurt. And that's because your real friends, your true friends, stab you in the front and not the back. Your real friends stab you in the front and not the back. I've been telling that phrase to people for over a decade now. I want to give you a very real practical example of what this looks like. One of my deepest, most intimate friendships that I have is with Michael Bartlett, our lead pastor. Our friendship goes back way longer than we care to admit. Uh, My wife likes to call it the time before I had wrinkles, which is awesome. Uh, But that's when our friendship started in college on the intramural softball fields. I wanted to win, and I saw that he wanted to win. And we connected because we both had this desire to compete and win. And so we got to know each other in college. We spent a lot of time doing the same things, same groups, pouring into the same things. And Tuesday night at Applebee's, every Tuesday night, For years, three or four years, at 10 o'clock, me and Michael and two other guys would go to our local Applebee's, order half-price appetizers because we're poor college kids, and we would sit and we would talk about our life and lay everything all out there on the line, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And for the first time, I was allowing Michael the opportunity to say, CT, this thing in your life right here, it's really crappy and you need to get rid of it. Real friendships hurt because your true friends stab you in the front and not the back. And now, being a part of this church, as Michael said, he asked us to move from out of state to be here. We got a get-out-of-jail-free card leaving Bowling Green, Ohio, but we came here and we invested in close relationship again in terms of proximity. And just to be completely honest, this friendship that we have has been harder and more difficult because of this church. We've never had a authority kind of relationship before, and I'm not on staff. I don't get paid. I'm a volunteer. But still, as a volunteer, I report back to the authority and the leaders of the church, which ultimately is Michael. And so there's a little bit of a level of power difference that we're struggling through. But the real thing is we challenge each other to be better to do better when we are speaking before you, to make an environment out here that is warm and inviting and accepting because we know at the heart of what we are trying to do is to get other people to experience Jesus. And sometimes that means really hard conversations. And we've had those conversations. But we know at the root of what we are trying to do is not hate, We're not pushing each other away. When we do push, it's invested in love and it's built around our relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so the hurt is okay because it's full of grace and truth. 
you're sitting here today and you're wondering, well, where do I find these friendships? You're making me feel kind of guilty. I don't have these. You're in the right place. Look around you. Serve here. Be here. Join a collective. Look at the people who keep showing up right next to you. Run with the runners, to use that analogy. And as you find these people, jump into life and engage with the people right around you that you find in this room. To wrap everything up that I've been talking about today, what's really interesting about being a Dr. Dorgan survivor is the fact that I became Dr. Dorgan. I am a professor, just the same as she is, and that's my life's occupation at Frederick Community College here in town. And I, for the first time in my life with my students, hold the power of the red pen. It's kind of cool, I'll be honest. <laughs> but what's interesting about me as an instructor, as a professor, is that my resume is not outstanding. My ability to teach knowledge is not nearly as good as a lot of other people that you'll find in the field. I don't know really big words. I, I kind of don't like big words. And I'm not able to structure a lesson nearly as good as what you will, what you will find with other people. But I challenge you to find somebody who cares about their students more than what I do. It would be hard to do. It's possible. It would definitely be hard to do. But part of this is because I want my students to grow and not just grow academically. But when it comes to their work, I use the red pen because just like Dr. Dorgan did with me, I see you can do better than what you're doing, and I want to help you get there. It should be the exact same way in our friendships today. So in your life, with your friends, create intimacy. Embrace the awkwardness of that word and create intimacy. Real, true intimacy. Be countercultural. Let people look at your friendship and be like, man, that is really weird. And take that as a compliment. And when needed, grab your red pen and invade somebody's life and stab them in the front. But do it with grace, and with truth. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love the fact that you sent your son to be here on this earth for us so that we could embrace a relationship, a friendship with you. We pray that you help us to realize what that looks like, first of all with you, and then with the people that we have around us, to overcome shallow relationships, to dive deep intentionally, to care and to invest in our relationships. We thank you for everything that you give to us. We thank you for sending your son to die for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.